Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can find us on Twitter, at PolicyCast, or subscribe on your channel of choice by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Now, we've all heard plenty about the protests that have riled Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of a police officer's shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown. If you live in the United States, you've no doubt heard calls for more progress on civil rights for African Americans. But if you live outside the United States, you may not have heard the term civil rights so much as the term human rights. A semantic difference? Perhaps not. We're joined today by Moshik Temkin, an historian and associate professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. Moshik, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've pointed out that here in the United States, we often see human rights as something of a global cause. But when we see similar circumstances here on our own soil, uh, we usually see it through the lens of civil rights. Why do you think we see it that way? Well, that's a good question. I think it's it, the, the, the answer has to do with a long, complex historical process, which is often the case with uh, these sorts of issues. Um, one thing that I think is important important to point out is has to do with the history of human rights, right? Uh, we tend to think nowadays, you know, human rights now is so um, omnipresent, uh, so dominant, uh, both in a global conversation and even here in the United States, that we tend to assume that it has simply, you know, been around since time immemorial. Actually, human rights, as, you know, several uh, historians have I've already written about um, really is a is a recent development, especially as it concerns um, you know standards that we have around the world uh, for the way that you know countries treat uh, treat their citizens, um, immigrants, minorities, and 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 so on and so forth. One basic difference I think between the way Americans uh, tend to see human rights versus the way people around the world, uh, depending where, tend to see human rights is that despite the prevalence of human rights talk here in the United States, I think human rights um, has been uh, almost strictly for export. That is, it's not a product that is meant for domestic consumption. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that we Americans tend to apply, uh, especially I'm thinking of you know the foreign policy world, um, our, our political leaders and so on, to events happening um, around the world without getting into too many um, examples, um, but not really for what happens in the United States. In the United States, as you pointed out, we have the civil rights um, concept of things. Right. Um, and we also have, in legal terms, we have the Constitution, which has really kind of been the framework uh, for determining, uh, you know, very basic issues that elsewhere around the world might be uh, considered human rights. So that's, mm -hmm. I would say, kind of the broad um, historical distinction that we have here. Is that something that is mirrored around the world? I mean, do do many countries see themselves as having a problem with human rights? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's hard for countries or governments to kind of concede that they have human rights issues, right? right. Uh, human rights is usually something that, you know, one, one country or international levels at others. Um, but it's important to point out that, um, you know, if you take the example of Europe um, and compare that to the United States, in the European Union, um, you know, if you look at the Council of Europe, they uh, apply human rights uh, internally. That is, it's something that is meant uh, also for 
standards of belonging to this European community, the European space. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give you an example, <clears throat> the issue of the death penalty, which is something else that I work on, uh, within the European Union, the, the, the having the death penalty on the books is in itself considered a human rights violation. Mm -hmm. So if you have, if you're a country that has a death penalty on the books, uh, then you can simply not be uh, a member of uh, the European community, mm. of the European Union. Um, in the United States, even though we Americans tend to think of ourselves as upholding human rights standards, um, the death penalty, which is on the books in many parts of the United States, is not considered uh, a human rights violation or even necessarily a human rights issue. Mm -hmm. So while we Americans, again, tend to kind of assess, adjudicate, evaluate what happens around the world in terms of human rights. Um, you could say that for uh, Europeans, um, the United States is a human rights violator mm -hmm. because it has a death penalty um, on the book. So I think that that is also kind of a, mm -hmm. a, a, a major difference between the way we in the United States tend to see things and the way people around the world tend to see the issue. Right. So speaking specifically about this difference between human rights and civil rights, as I alluded to before, is this just a semantic difference? Or are there actual differences between uh, that the focus on civil and human rights? Good question. Um, no, I don't think the difference is, um, uh, is semantic. I think there's certainly an overlap, <coughs> excuse me, in terms of the, uh, of, of the focus. Um, but, you know, just to make this kind of concrete, if you look at the issue of, let's say, the African-American, you know, issues that we have with African-American rights in the United States, minority rights, uh, the African-American the struggle in the United States, for the most part, it has been framed as a civil rights struggle. Um, what that means is basically that the civil rights movement, historically, if you look at the, the great struggles of the 1950s and 1960s, um, the, the civil rights movement makes a claim and a demand that American society live up to the creed and the ethos of you know the words in the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. that all men are created equal. So it really highlights the dissonance, the gap between the American promise, right, the American dream, and the American reality. But it does hold that promise that America um, is itself capable with struggle and with great sacrifice of attaining that level, right, of closing that gap eventually. Um, so that is really uh, the civil rights struggle um, as a kind of domestic concern, right? That this is something that concerns all Americans and it's a national problem. Now, <clears throat> another way to look at um, the problems that African Americans in this country have faced and are still facing is to look at it not so much in the way the civil rights leaders um, tended to, to view it or still view it today, uh, but the way other uh, black leaders in the past, such as Malcolm X, or James Baldwin and others tended to view the problem, which is actually as a human rights issue, first of all, uh, before it's a civil rights issue. That is, that the United States, in its mistreatment historically um, of black people, um, needs to be held to international standards um, of, of human rights. And that African Americans as a group uh, need to have their group rights uh, acknowledged. Um, by 
the United States, but also by the international community uh, before we can then talk about uh, just the kind of dom domestic issue. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, the human rights um, viewpoint of the African-American issue tends to internationalize the problem. Um, it tends to view it as an issue that has to do also with the relationship between uh, Americans and non-Americans, between Americans, the United States, and international institutions, uh, whereas the civil rights movement tends to focus on what's happening at home. So you've made the case before that the progress that was made in civil rights back in the 1960s was a consequence not just of the movement that we saw domestically, but also there was an international relations con uh, connection there, that the Cold War was part of what caused us to make changes. Uh, is that something that is, I mean, obviously we're in a very different world now, um, is that something that continues to propel us to, you know, seek progress? Well, we, it's true. We are in a different world today, but I think that, you know, history um, points us in certain directions in trying to analyze where we, you know, where we stand today and what we can look forward to. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the way that, you know, I have to kind of put this in context, the, sure. the way that uh, most Americans, I'll say this, study about civil rights progress in the United States in the 1950s and the 1960s is that, um, you know, the things that sort of, you know, you learn at school, that there was uh, slavery um, <clears throat> followed by the Civil War, which liberates the, the slaves eventually. Then you have the Reconstruction period, um, which is very brief, followed by decades of, um, at least in the American South, segregation, you know, Jim Crow, um, racial violence, uh, lynching, and so on and so forth. Um, and then a civil rights kind of struggle emerges uh, at the grassroots, fighting against uh, the situation, this injustice. And then through a combination of that civil rights struggle plus, um, you know, legal breakthroughs at Supreme Court and good moral leadership uh, from the top, um, the civil rights struggle kind of gains, uh, makes progress mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 1960s. We have the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and, 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 and so on and so forth. And that's a narrative, I think, that kind of unites many Americans around this idea of progress, right? That mm -hmm. we, we are able to overcome mm -hmm. uh, some of these injustices and live up to the American dream. Uh, the other side of this, which I think people know less about, um, is that there was an enormous uh, international geopolitical incentive for uh, policymakers and leaders in this country to make those, to, to kind of drive through these kinds of changes. And they had to do, as you pointed out, with the Cold War and the need to really convince people around the world that the United States was a place where, you know, uh, black people, minorities, um, could enjoy basic civil rights, mm -hmm. right? The right to vote, the right to move, the right to um, be in the same public spaces as others, the right to have the same kinds of opportunities and, and, and education. It's a fierce propaganda battle going on then between the United States and kind of the, so the Soviet Union, the, co the, the communist bloc. Um, and because so many of the negative images that were going on around the world of you know brutalizing uh, black protesters, civil rights protesters were causing enormous diplomatic damage. That's really what forced, in many ways, our leaders 
to kind of step in at, at many major junctures mm-hmm. um, in order to propel change. Like so, what, which, what kinds of junctures? <clears throat> well, one example is in 1957 when President Eisenhower uh, decides to send uh, federal troops to enforce uh, the desegregation of the high school um, in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, this was a direct result of the embarrassment that was being caused to the United States around the world at the height of the Cold War because of the kind of very violent uh, racist reaction of you know white Southerners to the idea of uh, desegregating. You know, they weren't able to enforce the Supreme Court uh, decision, mm-hmm. Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, second juncture is really the great Civil Rights Act, right, 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubting that you know, our leadership at the time um, had a, a desire to do this. Uh, this is what the civil rights movement was also demanding. Uh, but there was also the background of this ongoing Cold War struggle uh, that kind of, I'd say, was the tipping point, right, that really compelled our government uh, to step in and make sure uh, that these acts were were put through in order also to achieve American um, international aims, right? Mm-hmm. Our, conduct our foreign affairs the way that the United States had an interest to. Right. It seems like the protests that we saw in Ferguson uh, kind of shined a light on what might be a little bit of backsliding in the drive for civil or, as you might call, human rights. Is that because the world has changed? Is that because there's not that prerogative anymore for the United States to, you know, care about the Soviet Union and, and that uh, propaganda war? Well, I'd say a couple of things about that. First of all, I think that, that, you know, again, the other part of the narrative is that, you know, you have civil rights success. And yes, there are glitches here and there and some darker, mo- you know, some unpleasant moments, but we have the election of a black president in 2008 and basically, you know, the end of segregation and at least formally. Um, and so, you know, the civil rights struggle wins. Um, the reality is very different. The reality is that, um, you know, many African Americans in this country still live um, in unfair, unequal conditions. Uh, they are suffering from institutional and other kinds of uh, racism in various uh, domains of, of, of American life. Um, I think that Americans are, uh, many Americans are very upset and even stunned when events like uh, Ferguson happen, not so much by uh, necessarily, you know, the shooting or killing of a young black male, because that happens, uh, unfortunately, very often, but more by the reaction, right? Why would people protest so angrily um, in a place like Ferguson when their situation supposedly is so much better than it was, um, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s? Well, mm-hmm. you know, it's not necessarily much better for many of these people, and they still live through many of the problems that um, the civil rights struggle has been, you know, has been about. Um, so <clears throat> that's the first thing I should say about that. The second thing, your question about the lack of geopolitical incentive. We are, it's true, we are no longer in the Cold War. We don't have the same kind of, the United States doesn't have the same kind of struggle uh, with the Soviet Union. This is not the same kind of propaganda campaign, you know, one versus the other that served as the context for these kinds of issues that I, that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But the United States um, has still, um, obviously, well, one thing to say is that, you know, human rights as a, as a, um, 
kind of a, as an issue is a foundation, uh, at least formally, at least officially, of American foreign policy. It has been certainly since the end of the Cold War and even back to the presidency of Jimmy Carter in, in the 1970s. Um, now, the problem is that f- what happened in Ferguson, what's been happening there, um, and what might continue to happen there, we still don't know at, at the time that we're talking now, um, is seen by many people around the world as a human rights issue, even if Americans don't quite see it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when the original events in Ferguson happened, when, my, you know, Michael Brown w- uh, was shot, um, you know, this received astounding coverage in many parts of the world, you know, kind of denouncing uh, what kind of foreign observers called um, human rights violations. And in particular, it happened in places that are often accused themselves, particularly by the United States, as human rights violators. Mm-hmm. You know, Egypt, Iran, China, Russia, the list goes on. Now, we need to see these reactions with a, with a kind of a grain of salt. Right. Because these countries are... Um, they're looking you know, for propaganda wins. They, they they are eager to throw the criticism right back at the critics. Right. Um, however, the United States does have, um, in, you know, a, a prerogative um, in foreign affairs to convince many peoples around the world um, that they are promoting human rights in those places. Right. That is sometimes the official reason. Right? Why the United States nowadays actually intervenes, mm-hmm. whether militarily, politically, economically, the promotion of human rights is a major issue. Now, how are you going to convince people around the world that that is indeed your bona fide reason for doing so if you are perceived as being unable to maintain basic human rights standards at home? Right. So as the United States continues to be involved around the world, and it is, as the United States go kind of goes back into the Middle East through this big problem that we're having now with IS, um, the issues of you know what Americans call civil rights, such as Ferguson, mm-hmm. but what many people around the world call human rights are, I suspect, uh, going to be important once again, and it will mean that. American policymakers and leaders are going to have to address these issues from the top um, because they might be used, again, as a form of resistance to American involvement and intervention abroad. Well, Professor Moshe Temkin, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.